So we'll begin again this week with guided practice. Do what you can to be comfortable. And we'll probably be sitting for about 35 minutes. And even though you might not practice this way at home, but tonight we're going to go through the four variations of loving-kindness. So there's our basic seeing the good, which we call metta. But when the heart recognizes suffering, then we call that compassion or karuna. When the heart sees joy or happiness and responds in a free way to that, then we call that mudita, sympathetic joy, empathetic joy. And then when the heart sees clearly, deeply, then there's this quality we call upeka or equanimity. And I'll introduce each of these four practices. And so when we come to each one, I'll give you a particular way to, or a particular person that you can bring to mind, and a particular quality of that person to bring to mind, and then suggest some phrases. And this is just following the guidelines that I handed out with that first handout that uh, you got on the first night. So, of course, we'll begin with the basic metta that we've been doing the last two weeks. Sitting comfortably, you might want to take a couple of easy deep breaths. And often we'll begin a practice with either forgiveness reflection, but another way to begin the practice is just to do a short gratitude reflection. So we can try that tonight. And let this be quite ordinary. We can just have a sense of being in a safe place with a group of people that we feel comfortable with. We trust maybe each other's intentions. And we can just appreciate being here with the birds and the cool temperature. Grateful for whatever health that we have, healthy enough to be here tonight. Have enough time in our life to be able to be here. So gratitude is really a practice of receiving freely, receiving each breath, receiving the relative comfort of the body, having enough food, and receiving the relative calm in the mind. It may not be perfectly calm, but we're probably not deeply agitated fearful right now at least and we can appreciate the calm or the relative ease of the mind and you can even repeat the word thank you not that we're thanking anybody in particular 
but just a way to express some gratitude. Thank you for this, for things as they are right now. Appreciating the good fortune of our lives. However limited it is, we appreciate the good fortune in our lives. Our good friends, the skills that we have been able to develop over time, skill to take care of ourselves. Thank you. begin our loving-kindness or metta practice, we usually begin with whosoever easiest for us. We might be working with ourselves, or it might be a, a dear friend or benefactor, somebody who's really been there for us over time or long, even if it's a long time ago, but somebody who's really there, trustworthy. Bring the person to mind when you're ready and trying to remember their goodness as much as best as we can. Begin the phrases. By now, you probably know them. We'll go through them one time. May you be safe and protected in all ways. And may your heart be happy and peaceful. May your body be healthy and free from pain. May you take care of your life with ease and joy. And let's continue on our own now.
explore what it's like to really stick to your intention to practice. Be willing to begin again. in a gentle but very persistent manner to return. And feel free to bring yourself to mind if you began with another person to offer these loving kindness phrases towards yourself, for yourself.
for the last minute or two with the metta phrases. Just see who else comes to mind or perhaps bringing a group of people to mind. Even an anonymous group, all beings, or all my friends at work, all my relatives. Just experiment with a group of people, understanding as human beings, they just want to be happy, just like I want to be happy. And then take a few seconds of silence. And so we're just doing a silent metta practice. So just feeling that stream or flow of loving kindness in the heart, however faint it might be. And just beaming it, letting it radiate out in all directions, as if we were saying, may all beings be happy and at ease. And we'll begin our compassion practice, feeling the openness, the loveliness of the heart. And then bring to mind somebody you know that's experiencing some, some real suffering right now. It doesn't need to be a close friend. It could be just somebody you heard about that's in a difficult place. And use the power of the imagination to really get a sense of how challenging or difficult it is for this person now. And a typical phrase one might use for the compassion practice is, I care about your suffering. Or you could be more specific, I care about your loss. And then following that with, may you be free of suffering and the roots of suffering. May you be free of this pain and the roots of this pain. But of course, feel free to find your own phrase. Usually there's just one phrase for the compassion practice. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same, remembering the particular person that you've brought to mind, feeling the heart center, letting the heart be intimate 
with the suffering that we're remembering or bringing to mind. And then repeat the phrase slowly, connecting with the meaning of the words, as if this compassion were a simple but beautiful gift Notice in particular the power of the heart to get close, to be intimate with the suffering that we're bringing to mind, to really get it, get how it's difficult for human beings at times. And feel free to work with your own suffering, especially if it's particularly clear for you now. So you don't need to work with another person. You can bring to mind your own feelings of loss or anxiety or even physical pain in the body now. I care about this pain. May this heart be free of aversion, of suffering and the roots of all suffering.
I take a last, the last minute or two to have more of a sense of a global suffering, that it's hard for all beings, all human beings, and all, all non-human beings. Living is not easy for beings. I care about all beings. May all beings be free from suffering and free from the roots, the causes of suffering. And then we'll practice with mudita for a few minutes. So we continue just to feel the heart. Mudita, or empathetic, sympathetic joy. We begin by bringing to mind somebody whose happiness or success is obvious to us. So just see who you've seen recently, who you know about, that is feeling good and happy and successful in their lives. Just bringing to mind, remembering this person's happiness, feelings of success. And one of the ways that you can phrase this feeling of mudita, empathetic joy, appreciative joy, is to say something like, May your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end. So you can just repeat that phrase or find another phrase that you like. May your happiness continue, may it increase, may it never end.
And if you feel like it, you can bring to mind all happy beings now. So using our imagination, we know that right now there are children who are happily playing, swimming perhaps, hanging out with their friends. There are lovers who are happy now, people eating good food, people resting in a quiet, safe space. All the simple joys of being alive. Birds that have found some good seeds. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. Even the people here in this room Maybe they're feeling some quality of warmth and love in their hearts. We can have some mudita for them. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. Take another few minutes and do a equanimity reflection. In some ways, this is a little different or more complicated for some people at least. So we just bring to mind a neutral person is usually where we begin with the equanimity practice. And as you bring to mind this person, it's almost like we're seeing them as part of nature. Could be a guy that you see at the store often. And as you bring to mind somebody, you just understand that their happiness isn't so much dependent on our good good wishes for them, but their happiness really flows out of their actions in their lives. So you can repeat something like, may we all accept things just as they are. Or you could begin with, I care about you, but your happiness or unhappiness arises from your actions, not from my wishes. Or may you be happy, but your happiness really depends on your actions, not so much on my wishes. So find a phrase or a sentence that captures this beautiful balance in the mind, that understands that things are the way they are now, that we can care and wish well, but things are the way that they are now. This is how it is. May you be happy and peaceful, but things are the way that they are now. Bring into mind a particular person to begin with.
things are the way that they are. I care about this life. I care about all beings. But things are the way that they are. Take some time and stretch out your body if you need to. saw the handout, and this uh, the top of it is a bodhicitta aspiration. I'll talk a little bit about that later tonight as it relates to metta practice. But the last four uh, verses here are part of a discourse the Buddha gave, and it's become a very common chant in the Buddhist tradition. It's just a way that the Buddha taught the monks and nuns and lay people to do the practice is actually to send out the good feelings in all directions. So when we get relatively good at this practice, we're really invited to sort of live by pervading. It's like we're beaming out wishes of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity all the time in all directions. And we can actually use that image as if the heart, you know, for especially for people who like images, you know, it's interesting how how much reality um, is affected. Our experience of reality is affected by how our minds are, what we're thinking. And uh, it is disconcerting for the ego because the ego has a very strong idea that, you know, it's sort of like life's a B-I-T-C-H and i got to work really hard to kind of turn it into something that's palatable for me. But when we realize how malleable our experience is, depending on our particular attitude, life sort of responds. And so this is, we can, we can see. And it goes both ways, just like the external world can affect our inner environment pretty quickly. You know, we can be quite happy, and then somebody calls us up and says something, and we can get into a really angry state or depressed state or whatever. And in the same way, if we're in a funk, we can, we can consciously turn that around, partly by noticing we're in a funk, partly by just bringing a different attitude in the mind, like doing a loving-kindness reflection, feeling like this heart is capable of being a, a force of good, of sending our good wishes. Like right in the middle of our anger, or right in the middle of our depression, or right in the middle of whatever funk we happen to be in, we can remember that this heart is capable of good feelings, good wishes. And we can just begin, even if it feels feeble at first. And it really changes our experience. It changes our reality. So tonight we went through the four just to see that no matter the particular situation 
like who we're around or what we're remembering or what seems to be highlighted in our life, that the heart actually can respond. So we don't need a particular set of conditions in order to be radiating, connected and radiating with this good heart. So why don't we just take a few minutes and see what people people's experience was tonight or if you've done these practices in the past, your favorite, the one that's difficult for you, or what you noticed in doing the different uh, practices. Anything, anything stand out for you in terms of these four different qualities of the good heart? Nicole? I'm really trouble with the euthanasia and, and doing it. I think I understand the essence of it, but it's hard to put that to words that doesn't make it feel like I'm distancing myself or yeah. not yeah. really sharing or I care about you, but whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it is the most subtle. Did you find a phrase that seemed to work best for you? I just have done the... Um, I share about you, and then in that, having the sense without words, uh-huh, uh-huh. Kind of, that I can't do anything about it. Yeah. But without saying that, because then uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. it puts me in a different state, I guess. Yeah. And one, one way that Cher talks about it in her chapter, in her book, this is a great book if you haven't read it and you're interested in this practice, it's in paperback now, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. We often have copies downstairs in the library. You can check first before getting your own copy. And a lot of the libraries in town have it, too. So you might not need to purchase it if you don't want to. Um, But in her chapter on equanimity, one way to do that is to begin, like Nicole said, with something like, I care about your suffering or I care about you. And then Sharon suggests something like uh, immensity of change or just somehow recalling how the uh, how little control any one of us has about how it is for us right now. So we're just, as we remember, you know, looking out there in the room, there are all these people here, and just getting a sense that probably everybody here has difficulty in their lives, challenges, pain. And then, and then just in recognizing and caring about that, even with, like Nicole said, you don't even need to have words, but it's almost like the way of gazing or seeing, just seeing that each person is simply the unfolding of their own causes and conditions. And that's an immense thing. It's an immense web of causes and conditions that is each person's life in this room and how limited my good wishes are. My good wishes are really good for me and they're good for the world. But in terms of everybody's experience of happiness and unhappiness, their particular web of causes and conditions is what's primary. And we can just appreciate that, that things are the way that they are, that this person's life is unfolding lawfully given the particular causes and conditions in their life. It doesn't mean they deserved what they got. It just means that it's lawful, that it's just the natural lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. So this is why it's such a beautiful practice. Equanimity is such a beautiful practice because it's relatively easy to have good feelings if we think they're going to have an effect. Like, 
if we strongly believe that if we uh, sent out good feelings to all the generals and people involved in the Iraq conflict, that by tomorrow morning it would all be cleared up, we would work pretty hard, right? Sending out our good wishes. We probably most of us would be willing to stay, stay up all night, sending our good wishes, if we had a sense, even like 50-50 chance, that it would change the situation in Iraq. But you know. It's pretty easy for us just to open our mind, like to gaze out into the Middle East and all the different power centers in this country, in this world, and just kind of get the amazing web of causes and conditions that is the Middle East and Iraq and all of that. And knowing that, can we still have wishes, good wishes, for all the people involved there? Like. It can the heart not be defeated by the complexity and the momentum that it, that makes Iraq what it is right now? Can it still be radiantly uh, compassion, radiating compassion and kindness and good wishes for everyone involved? So this is really nice, and it's really important in relationships too, intimate relationships, good friendships parents, siblings, because, you know, we, we tend to care so much about those close relationships and want their suffering to go away, want their life to be better, to go well, for their happiness to continue. And what equanimity does, that deepening of equanimity, it really takes the grippiness out of the heart. So actually it allows us to be intimate because we understand that my brother's life is my brother's life. And I can, you know, I can love him, I can be there, but I'm not going to change his life, probably. And even with my partner, it's like one of the things that this is like a real edge for me is to have deeper and deeper equanimity around my partner. And it's so healthy, it's so much healthier that way than, because otherwise I can justify all kinds of controlling behaviors if I don't have equanimity. And they masquerade as kindness and compassion. But it's really, you know, it creates hell realms for both of us, for sure for her, also for me. So if I can really understand that this person has her own causes and conditions, and I can be really loving, and I can have sympathetic joy when she's happy, and I can have compassion when she's suffering, but I can understand that even though, relatively speaking, I, have, I do have some influence on this person's well-being, it's still relatively limited to how her mind has been conditioned. You know, I may want her to be really happy, but that doesn't mean she's going to be happy today. Or I may want her suffering to end, but it doesn't mean her suffering is going to end. Even if I act as skillfully as I can as a partner, it doesn't mean I'm going to affect her happiness, her well-being. And that's, you know, so that's really a wonderful place of freedom to be able to have brothers and sisters and close friends and partners and to be um, willing to love these people, these beings, without their life having to be any particular way. You know, and the classic example is to you know, to be around somebody who's got a serious injury or critical medical condition. 
and to somehow have an expectation that it, it get better. Like our love is somehow conditional. Like I love you because I want this to get better. But can we love them regardless if it gets better or not? Can we care and have compassion regardless if things get better? Regardless if they get over whatever the problem is in their life. What else comes to mind from your practice tonight? What did you notice? What was easy or hard? Mm-hmm. I forgot your name. Lisa Marie. Lisa Marie, that's right. Lisa Marie, say that phrase again. I like that. But you're, this is a new version of equanimity, an equanimity phrase. It is what it is, and it is equanimity. Yeah. That's a beautiful equanimity phrase. It is what it is, and it isn't what it isn't. And in the way we notice, see, what the phrases that are going to be meaningful to us is when we say them, then look at the effect it has on the mind and heart. Is it having the, the practical effect that we're looking for? So it's totally pragmatic. Don't like use a phrase because your friend uses it or because you read it in a book. Really see the effect of the phrase on the mind. And we're really getting that, uh, just like our mind affects how we our reality, we can affect the mind. We can use things like techniques, reflections. We can use those reflections to change the quality of the mind and heart. What else comes to mind? Adam. I'm just thinking about, like, isn't there an element of, like, equanimity of just accepting kind of everything that's going on? Like, isn't there... Like it seemed like in the meta practice there was kind of a emphasis on conceptual being is different than this suffering being. And really like I, I think of equanimity as a good kind of place to exercise kind of understanding that this is because I because I'm the way I am, you're the way you are kind of a thing. See now that would be another really good equanimity phrase. I like that. Yeah. Like noticing that it's important that, like, I, if I can recognize suffering, it's 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 important at the moment. And if and if I think about a person as kind of like individually, then I can probably recognize causes and conditions 
for the decisions they made and things like that, but if I look at just kind of the moment as it is right now, that I just notice that this is going on because that's going on, and mm-hmm. it feels a lot less, um, and then like the personal responsibility pieces, yeah. which a lot of, which I feel sometimes threatened by, like, where to put personal responsibility, yeah. where to see that in others. Yeah, and that's, I think, the hard thing for a lot of people in equanimity is that it, it like you suggested to Nicole, there seems a little bit of judgment, can be, judgment can kind of creep into the phrase, unless we really work at finding a phrase that works. I opened the book because uh, Sharon has something, one of the phrases, she says, may we all accept things as they are, or may we be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. And the traditional phrase, just in case you didn't catch it, I don't think I said it exactly the way it is in the the ancient texts. Not from the Buddha, but from shortly after the time of the Buddha, they kind of systematized a lot of the teachings the Buddha gave, and they sort of turned them into sort of very specific techniques. And these phrases come out of that. Um, And the phrase back then was, all beings are owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them. So that can seem a little cold and stiff for us, but it can give us a little bit of a flavor of uh, the understanding that goes with it. People are the owners of their karma, meaning my life is defined by this web of causality. This is who I am, you know, this momentum of causes and conditions that makes me say what I'm saying right now or move my hands the way that I'm moving my hands right now, all of that is the expression of this momentum of causes and conditions. So that's what they mean by owners of our actions. That defines us. All that past defines that who we are in this moment is the culmination of everything past. And so that's what determines our happiness. And the question is, can we be loving in the midst of this kind of a world? And that really transforms things, doesn't it? Because what we want to do when we reflect like that is we want to go, well, who cares? Why does it matter? You know, sort of slide into nihilism. It doesn't matter. It's all causes and conditions. So what we what can arise, it's like the metta practice is really using the mind to discover a quality of the heart that's not bounded by thought or concept. And so what we do is we, the equanimity is in a sense the deepest quality of the heart because we're opening to things in a very deep way. We're moving beyond our sort of personal view of things, and we're seeing things more impersonally as causes and conditions. So instead of seeing Lori, I'm training my mind to see this uh, stream of causality, you know, which we conventionally call Lori, but it's just causes and conditions. And, and then seeing things deeply in this way, can the heart remain open and intimate? And that really reveals something about the heart, that it, it isn't dependent on our stories. See, it's relatively easy for me to like people because of what I know about them. 
and about the story I have about them. But to be intimate and loving without any sort of personal story, that's just the way we are in the world, whether we're meeting a chair or another human being. You know, there's a kind of tenderness and warmth and patience and acceptance. So that's why it's really good to bring equanimity. Equanimity purifies the other three. Seeing the beautiful loving-kindness or metta, uh, being intimate with suffering, being intimate with joy and happiness. Without equanimity, these tend to go toward their what's called the near enemies. So metta goes towards attachment, like love with attachment. And compassion goes towards pity. And uh, mudita goes towards uh, exuberance. It's sort of interesting. The near enemy of mudita, uh, sympathetic joy, is we get caught up in our own exuberance. In a way, we totally disconnect from the other person's happiness. And we're kind of in our own little sort of inner frenzy of happiness for their happiness. You see that if you ever... I remember watching Miss America titles when I was a kid. and. <laughs> You know how the uh, runner-up and, you know, when they announce the final person. And the others kind of squeal. And, of course, you, you, you have to assume they're really in pain. But they can, they can whip up enough frenzy that they kind of get caught up in their own sort of seeming joy. And it's not really, uh, it's, a, it's more tension than anything else. And sort of it masquerades a sympathetic joy that kind of uh, exuberance, over-exuberance. So we can, equanimity keeps everything kind of cool and beautiful. That, that the heart, this really beautiful goodness of the heart, it's not showy. It doesn't need to be showy. It, it's like uh, love for its own sake. It doesn't need to be seen. Um, it doesn't need to be owned by anybody. It's, it's really like the background of the heart. So it's not trying to prove itself to anybody or you know, make something up or make something different than it is. And it will take just a couple more minutes if there are other comments about what you noticed tonight. Robert? I've been struggling with um, the uh, your happiness. Did you find a way that came close for you that worked better? Um, I was just waiting to ask you about it tonight, but I felt like a jerk because I don't want to be like, you know, skeptical and trying to do this loving kind of thing. It's like, well, of course you're not going to be happy forever. I don't, I don't know. So I was trying to, uh-huh. like, struggling with suppressing the skeptic and trying to just still. So, no, I didn't really. Um, I mean, I guess the peaceful part of it, when you have peace, is. That's easier. Well, my guess is if we took the time and went around the room, people would feel that probably about all the phrases, that there is a tendency towards sentimentality and, and likeness 
and uh, I'm looking for my sheet that has all the phrases on it, but I must have left it in the other room. Um, but the, here's the interesting thing that makes this practice work, is if the mind focuses on that person changing, like that their happiness actually does continue and does increase and never ends, then it, it actually gets in the way of the practice. So remember, the focus is here on the good wish. And so I actually can have the wish for you that whatever success and happiness you have in your life, I really do wish that it continue. And actually, I wish that it increases. And I would be really happy if your happiness never ended. I would. I, and I, actually, I feel that. Now, I know it's not realistic, but that, but that wish is realistic. See, and it's... You can, wish, you can separate the wish from, mm-hmm. from the... Yeah, okay. So I can also wish that you be free from pain, even though it's really unlikely you're going to have a life free of pain. But I can have that wish, and it's a real thing, that you be free of pain. So it's really a matter of where you're paying attention. And, and so this is just a technique. And so to do the technique right, we have to stay connected with the goodness of the wish as opposed to that person's life and what's likely to unfold for them. Because yeah. that we don't know about. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Adam? I guess on the flip side, I see myself automatically having wishes for the contrary, like when I'm driving or something, just when I get mad at somebody, kind of wishing things that I'd never truly, if I scrutinize the yeah. wishes that I have for people, they wouldn't be possible either, because I'd be like, I'd never want what just yeah. popped in my mind to actually happen to this person, yeah. I, but, I, but it kind of happens automatically, and yeah, we likewise just... I could see a word that deliberately bringing up something that kind of tips the scale and some of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Aren't we glad that our wishes don't come true? <laughs> Go to hell. <laughs> you know how many times you could... It'd be a crowded place. <laughs> Is that Robert? David. David. Um, you know, you were talking about um, wishing everything to be happy for everybody and and that he was saying something to the effect, if I understand it, a little distant or remote from the reality of that. And um, speaking just from my own experiences, um, my body's gone through a lot of physical problems and pain. And that even there are times when my body is experiencing a whole lot of pain and I don't feel all that happy. But the majority of the time, I feel pretty happy. I think that's because of the effect of... um, accepting what's just happened, what is. And even though you might want the best for me, the best came out of me because of that pain. So just because if you look at someone and you feel that whatever it's physical or mental pain, I think it's in the re- I think it's not remote. I think it's in the in the realm of possibility that if a person learns to let go of that practice to let go of it, you gain something. And so in the midst of the times when, of course, it's been going on for many, many decades for me, but 
it took a long time to the point where um, I didn't feel defeated all the time. Okay? But the fact remains that I'm in this situation in life and that really the pain enhanced my life. And it really didn't take away from anything. So it's not a far-fetched idea to sit down and wish the best for anybody and for happiness for them, even when they're in the midst of all their pain, regardless of what that is. Because if they find in the, the nugget or the little essence that's involved in that, that will allow them to stop grasping that, then that's a, a lesson that they can learn and it will serve them well as time as they move through time. Yeah. Yeah, and what David said is, I think, a really clear explanation of compassion, except here it's he's working with it himself and, and discovering the power of compassion. So he had a choice, which was to either distract himself from the pain he had or to uh, fight, control, try to control it, change it, or to be intimate with it. That's what compassion is, is being intimate with suffering or pain. And in the process of being intimate with pain, it's like, in, what can be intimate with pain? Well, only the loving heart can be intimate with pain. So one of the ways we discover we become enlightened, free, is we, we use our life to reveal the heart that we normally don't see because we're sort of living a superficial life. So when there's pain and we don't take the conditioned ways, which is to react to it or to deny it, but we actually practice being intimate. It changes. It reveals something in our heart that we wouldn't otherwise know. <coughs> and it transforms our life, as you talked about, usually slowly and gradually. And we can do it with our own pain, but we can do it with other people's pain, too. And then also, it not only transforms our lives, but then we're sort of walking models for how to be with pain. We're modeling freedom with pain, freedom with being, which is just freedom with being a normal human being, because being a normal human being includes having pain. But it doesn't have to mean that we suffer, and I think that's what David was talking about. Any last thoughts before we go on? So I wanted to do a couple more things with the 20 minutes that we have left. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, maybe about 10 minutes, um, on this theme of metta as a skillful means. And then I want us to take the last five or 10 minutes to talk about the bodhicitta aspiration and dedication. And that's at the top of the handout from tonight. And this is just a, another way to do a metta practice. And it's really beautiful. So I'll, we'll spend about five or 10 minutes at the end doing that. So I really, one of the things I like about loving-kindness practice is that, you know, our tendency is to think of this as being sentimental. And especially when you hear the phrases, for a certain portion of us, it's just kind of the initial impression of loving-kindness practice is like, you know, that's just wishful thinking. And yeah, you can kind of whip up some good feeling, but it's just a setup for suffering because life ain't that way or something like that. And... So what I'd like to just have us reflect on is how incredibly practical and skillful this way of reflecting is. 
And it goes back to what I said earlier, that how we use the mind really affects our reality. And to be willing to, to sort of look and see if that's true, not to assume that things are this way and I don't care what other people say, this is how it is. And then if we really think that, then actually it is that way. I mean, if the mind is sort of blind and thinks it's only this way, then it's like that's all we see. It's all we let ourselves see. We create that reality. So if you're having, if you're having some skepticism about the practice, probably the best advice is just to do it consistently for some period of time and to be very honest with yourself about the effect that it has. Just do it. And judge it not whether it makes sense, but judge it according to the effect it has on your mind and heart. So there's sort of three ways to think about how practical or how metta, loving-kindness practice, is really just a practical way of living. And one is, the first way, the most obvious way, is it creates a lot of stability in our lives. And one of the ways that it does it is one of the most uh, corrosive mind states or thoughts that we can have as human beings is to feel worthless. Like our life has no meaning, or I'm no good, I have nothing to offer, I'm just a bunch of greed, anger, and delusion, you know, or whatever. And so when we do this practice and we have moments where we, because we're conscious, we're awake, we actually notice something wholesome in our heart, that's the cause for a very deep and and stable kind of confidence to arise. It's like we see something that's trustworthy. And then the great thing is we're not projecting it like on somebody else. You know, oh, I'm so glad I found you, you know, because you're so trustworthy. But we actually see it right here, that seeing something that's trustworthy, worthy of our trust, worthy of our devotion, really. And that really changes our relationship to ourselves, to our life. It's like there's a jewel or a gem right here that that we uh, makes us feel good, makes us willing to get up in the morning, that we have something to cultivate, something to share. There's nothing that feels better than giving something, you know, in a way that's useful for others. It's service is such a. I mean, if you want to be ha- ha- this is this is like paraphrasing the Buddha. They basically said, if you want to be happy, help, serve, give away. That is the most direct, accessible way to happiness, is real generosity, service. And with the cultivation of this good heart, it's like we're giving away something really beautiful and valuable all the time. We can. There's nothing in the way of us sending out our good wishes all the time. Or, like Adam suggested, we could be sending out our hateful wishes, you know, with a different kind of consequence. So there's this great stability. um, And the more we see that quality of fullness and wholeness when the heart is open and loving and compassionate, the more we trust it, the more we... And then, of course... We start, the more we recognize in ourselves, the more we start to pick it up in other people. 
And then it's really, it gets easier and easier to trust other people, even when they're acting out unskillfully. It's like we can see through their surface behavior and we can see their essential goodness. It doesn't mean we accept their surface behavior if it's inappropriate, but it means that we don't like throw the person out of our heart because we see their goodness. Just like we know it's here, we also know then it has to be there because what we see here isn't personal to Mark. It's something, what we discover in this love, and you'll see this as you do the metta and the compassion practices, you see that the more you do it, the more you see it isn't personal. It's not you who has a lot of compassion or has sympathetic joy or equanimity. It's a, it's a sort of, a, you know, it's a, it's a much bigger fountain than whatever, whoever I am. And we really get it. It actually has this impersonal feeling. And the neat thing is, it's impersonal, but it's still really beautiful. You know, normally we think it would only be beautiful if it's mine. But in a way, it's beautiful because it's not me. You know, that it's, it's something, it, it has a feeling of wholeness or uh, something beyond ourselves. And so this is a great place, a great way to develop stability and confidence in our life, in our heart. This is one of the practical benefits of doing the practice, of cultivating this practice. It's just feeling really confident that there's something good. There's a reason to live, to cultivate this heart and to give it away, to use it to take care of ourselves and all beings. Another really practical effect of doing this practice is it highlights aversion. You know, the more we cultivate feelings of loving kindness and compassion, mudita, sympathetic joy, equanimity, the more any kind of aversion, impatience, irritation, outright hatred, anger, it really starts to stand out. That doesn't mean we can stop it, you know, because we're still a conditioned being. A lot of us have a lot of negativity that's been sort of conditioned in the mind. So it's going to get triggered, but we'll see it, and we'll feel how corrosive it is. You might think, well, I don't want to know how corrosive it is. But that's actually, if we're going to be angry or impatient, it's better to feel how corrosive it is than to be oblivious to how corrosive corrosive or destructive it is. Because it's only when we feel it that we begin to uh, discover how to let it go. If we don't feel how much pain is involved in holding a hot pan, we never let go. It's like, uh, I forget the exact medical condition, but there are some people that are insensitive to pain, you know, some kind of nerve damage. And it's like really easy for those people to injure themselves. You know, they just don't have that feedback mechanism. And it's the same thing. If, we're, if we know that the suffering involved in, in uh, aversion, it's relatively easy to let go. But we have to see the suffering in order to know what to let go of. We have to see how destructive it is, moment by moment, to let it go. And metta really helps. Because, you know, the kind of people that end up at common ground aren't the people with the really, you know, going out and mugging and killing and um, doing terrible things to other people. So a lot of us may have a lot of aversion or anger, but it's well defended, well disguised. So to illuminate it, we need metta. 
because then it, it kind of really stands out for us. So you can notice this effect from the metta practice practices. And then the last very practical effect is as we cultivate metta, we begin to understand the deepest principles in spiritual life. You know, in Buddhism we hear terms like emptiness or the non-self characteristic. And, you know, it's like, what does that mean? What does that mean practically? Well, metta, a moment of loving kindness, a moment of compassion, a moment of sympathetic joy or equanimity, that is a moment of enlightenment. It, it sort of, in a temporary sense, it's an it's a experience of enlightenment. When it's a true moment of loving kindness, that means there's no self there who's loving and kind. It's just loving kindness that's present. So you can notice the uh, in the experience of ordinary loving kindness and compassion, notice the absence of self-centeredness. Notice the freedom from self-centeredness, the freedom from that the weight of self-centeredness. Ordinary moments. Don't look for sort of symbols and thunder, you know, I'm enlightened. It's just ordinary moments when you're relaxed with your children, just playing in the sand or taking them to the park, and there's just a kind of uh, natural affection, warmth, well-wishing for your kids, for the birds. Just notice the absence of fixation in the mind and the effortlessness, the freedom of having to be an ego who has to present themselves, have to have to be a particular way, have to avoid being a particular way. So this is the third practical effect of this practice, is that we really understand spiritual freedom, enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, in the most ordinary moments. Because actually this really helps us um, understand the whole spiritual path, is when we understand what the goal is. And, and for a lot of us, enlightenment can be very abstract, and we can get very idealistic about these concepts of you know, the divine, of a mystical experience, or whatever, nirvana. We're very idealistic, and, and then we, we start getting weird. So, like the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. I mean, it's such a, you know, of course, he'll talk about enlightenment, but what he's saying is it's really the same as ordinary kindness, and just really understanding what the experience of ordinary kindness is. So we're really illuminating ordinary moments of compassion. Everybody here has moments of pure compassion. You know, we see a squirrel that's been hit and on the side of the world, and if we can, if we can sort of not get caught in our aversion or, or squeamishness and just meet the suffering of that being, we can, the whole world can open up in that moment. And it can be both horrific as, we be, as we're sensitive to the dying squirrel and really beautiful and free at the same time. Like, we discover the heart that's not afraid to see death and pain. In just ordinary moments. Or we hear about something on the news, and it can just, the heart can just move. So we want to notice these moments of enlightenment, of relative or temporary freedom, when the heart is based in loving kindness. When the mind and heart is coming from that place of loving kindness or compassion. So keep these three things in mind, just as a way of uh, 
a really, uh, this is like so practical, you know. The, the quality of stability and confidence, really uh, the benefit of seeing aversion and all its subtleties, all the different places we wouldn't otherwise notice it, starts to become apparent to us. And to have a deeper and deeper understanding what the whole spiritual life is about, like what the Buddha means by Nibbana or freedom or the end of suffering. What does that mean? Because this will help us orient our, our life and practice. So I want to take the last few minutes and just give us a very simple practice. And many of you have been coming to Kamagani and you know this practice. And it's part of the, you know, it's an ancient Buddhist practice in all the different Buddhist traditions to, you know, you could do it at the end of the day or at the end of a sit, at the end of your meal, if you're eating with your family or just by yourself. But just find once or more times each day to connect with your deepest aspiration. And in Buddhism, it's sometimes called the bodhicitta aspiration. That's what these Chinese characters are, bodhi and citta. Citta is the word for mind or heart, and bodhi means to awaken. It's the same root as Buddha. Buddha and bodhi come from the same uh, root word. So the awakened heart. So the awakened heart is the loving heart, is metta. And... Um, and the nice thing is for you to find your own way to do it. So the, the words here at the top of the page, it's just one way. And I often connect the aspiration with sharing of the merit. And this is a, a related practice, especially in the Theravada tradition, where we, we uh, specifically train the mind to recognize the goodness that we've cultivated in a particular meditation set or during the day, all the good actions, all the good thoughts that have occurred for us that day, we remember that goodness and the blessings, the sort of power of that goodness. Like there's some uh, potent momentum when we were, when we really uh, wholeheartedly were patient in a time when we had a lot of tendency to be impatient, or we really. Um, I didn't act out of aversion when we felt like acting out of aversion. Or we had, we really sat with some difficult pain in our meditation period. So we remember that and we, we just feel the force of good there and then we offer that away. Like whatever goodness developed by coming to this class for three weeks and doing our practice at home, whatever goodness, however meager, however grand, whatever it is, I happily share that with my parents, for example. And then we just, just just really give that gift away and with my partner or good friends and, in, and then out to all beings. So generally, traditionally, you begin with your parents, whether they're alive or dead. And the neat thing about this practice, it's a, traditionally a way of taking care of people who you, who you love or know who've already died, that this is a way to sort of support them. Again, I have no proof. But it's, it's a beautiful gesture. I know it feels good for me, and I have no reason to doubt that it doesn't help other beings, including beings that have passed away. So you can read through this. Um, I'll just read it out loud as one possibility. May this life and practice be for the benefit of all beings. May the blessings of this life and practice be shared with my parents and teachers, 
family and friends and with all beings everywhere. May the merit of this practice be joined with all the wholesome actions of the past, present, and future, and together may it be dedicated to the welfare, happiness, and liberation of all beings. May all beings be at ease, free from suffering. So for the last two minutes, let's each of us do our own silently in our mind. If you want, you can just read this, but you may have you may appreciate it more if you just let it come spontaneously from your heart. So again, we're just connecting with our deepest aspiration for our lives to live, practice for the benefit of others, and then to share whatever goodness we have generated in our life, share that with others. Okay? So we'll just take two minutes. All beings benefit from our practice. I'll just end with a, a short quote. Uh, some of you know Houston Smith. He was a well-known religion, uh, comparative religion uh, professor at MIT, and I think he taught somewhere else before then. I don't know. Did he die? Does anybody know if he eventually died? There's a beautiful series of shows on PBS, maybe five years ago, interviewed by... Uh, Bill Moyers interviewed him. And uh, anyway, he uh, practiced uh, Buddhism in Japan way back in the 60s, I think. And he asked his teacher at the end of his retreat, what is the essence of Buddhism? And he gave this great answer. And it's really a little bit like a dedication. You could even use it for your dedication. He said, infinite gratitude for all things past. Infinite service for all things present, infinite responsibility for all things future. Isn't that nice? Infinite gratitude for all things past, infinite service to all things present, infinite responsibility for all things future. It kind of uh, it definitely puts us in metta, the metta heart. And also, just we, you know, the, the, one of the characteristics of metta is it's the opposite of self-centeredness. So we feel that kind of support from the past, responsibility for the future, and real focus on the here and now, like giving our life away in the here and now. So thanks for coming. It's been really nice practicing together. If you have any questions, feel free to uh, talk with me. And you know, we have the monthly practice group for the loving-kindness practices 
the first Friday of the month at 7 to 8.30. And then we always have a reception afterward. It's a chance to get to know some of the people here. So join us. It's coming up, right, uh, 6th of July, Friday the 6th of July at 7 o'clock if you want to do some practice. And also you might want to sign up for one of the half-day or day-longs. You can do the whole day-long retreat doing the loving-kindness practices. So you don't, even though I might give, be giving instructions on the mindfulness practice, feel free to come to any of the retreats and just do metta practice. It's really perfectly fine. It's great to do to do that. And maybe sometime uh, later in the fall, we'll do a retreat that's specifically for people who want to do the metta practice um, so that the instructions can all Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.